Volume Two, Chapter Eight of Gwen Wynn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amanda Friday. Gwen Wynn, A Romance of the Why, by Maine Reed. Chapter Eight The Game of Peak. The sun has gone down upon Gwen Wynne's natal day, its twenty-first anniversary, and Langorn Court is in a blaze of light, for a grand entertainment is there being given, a ball. The night is a dark one, but its darkness does not interfere with the festivities, instead heightens their splendor by giving effect to the illuminations, for although autumn, the weather is still warm, and the grounds are illuminated party-colored lamps are placed at intervals along the walks and suspended in festoonery from the trees while the casement windows of the house stand open people passing in and out of them as if they were doors the drawing-room is this night devoted to dancing its carpet taken up the floor made as slippery as a skating rink with beeswax abominable custom though a large apartment it does not afford space for half the company to dance in and to remedy this supplementary quadrilles are arranged on the smooth turf outside a string and wind band from the neighboring town making music loud enough for all besides all do not care for the delightful exercise a sumptuous spread in the dining-room with wines at discretion attracts a proportion of the guests while there are others who have a fancy to go strolling about the lawn even beyond the coruscation of the lamps some who do not think it too dark anywhere but the darker the better the elite of at least half the shire is present, and Miss Linton, who is still the hostess, reigns supreme in fine exuberance of spirits. Being the last entertainment at Langorn, over which she is officially to preside, one might imagine she would take things in a different way. But as she is to remain resident at the court, with privileges but slightly, if at all, curtailed, she has no gloomy forecast of the future. Instead, on this night present she lives as in the past, almost fancies herself back at Cheltenham in its days of splendor, and dancing with the first gentleman in Europe, Redivivus. If her star be going down, it is going in glory, as the song of the swan is sweetest in its dying hour. Strange that on such a festive occasion, with its circumstances attendant, the old spinster, hitherto mistress of the mansion, should be happier than the younger one hereafter to be. But in truth, so is it. Notwithstanding her great beauty and grand wealth, the latter no longer in perspective, but in actual possession. Despite the gaiety and grandeur surrounding her, the friendly greetings and warm congratulations received on all sides, Gwen Wynne is herself anything but gay, instead sad, almost to wretchedness. And from the most trifling of causes, though not as by her estimated, little suspecting she has but herself to blame. It has arisen out of an episode, in love's history of common and very frequent occurrence, the game of peaks. She and Captain Rycroft are playing it, with all the power and skill they can command. Not much of the last, for jealousy is but a clumsy fencer. Though accounted keen, it is often blind as love itself, and were not both under its influence, they would not fail to see through the flimsy deceptions they are mutually practicing on one another. In love with each other almost to distraction, they are this night behaving as though they were the bitterest enemies, or at all events, as friends sorely estranged. She began it, blamelessly, even with praiseworthy motive, which, known to him, no trouble could have come up between them. But when, touched with compassion for George Shenstone, 
she consented to dance with him several times consecutively, and in the intervals remained conversing, too familiarly, as Captain Rycroft imagined, all this with an engagement ring on her finger, by himself placed upon it, not strange in him, thus fiancé, feeling a little jealous, no more that he should endeavour to make her the same. Strategy, old as hills, or hearts themselves. In his attempt he is, unfortunately, too successful, finding the means nearby, an assistant willing and ready to his hand. This in the person of Miss Powell. She also went to church on the Sunday before in Jack Wingate's boat, a young lady so attractive as to make it a nice point whether she or Gwen Wynne be the attraction of the evening. Though only just introduced, the hussar officer is not unknown to her by name, with some repute of his heroism besides. His appearance speaks for itself, making such impression upon the lady to set her pencil at work inscribing his name on her card for several dances, round and square, in rapid succession. And so between him and Gwen Wynne the jealous feeling, at first but slightly entertained, is nursed and fanned into a burning flame, the green-eyed monster growing bigger as the night gets later. On both sides it reaches its maximum, when Miss Wynne, after a waltz, leaning on George Shenstone's arm, walks out into the grounds and stops to talk with him in a retired shadowy spot. Not far off is Captain Rycroft observing them, but too far to hear the words passing between. Were he near enough for this, it would terminate the strife raging in his breast, as the sham flirtation he is carrying on with Miss Powell put at end to her new-sprung aspirations, if she has any. It does as much for the hopes of George Shenstone, long in abeyance, but this night rekindled and revived. Beguiled, first by his partner's amiability and so oft dancing with, then afterwards using him as a foil, he little dreams that he is but being made a cat's paw. Instead, drawing courage from the deception, emboldened as never before, he does what he never dared before, make Gwen win a proposal of marriage. He makes it without circumlution, at a single bound, as he would take a hedge upon his hunter. Gwen, you know how I love you, would give my life for you. Will you be— Only now he hesitates, as if his horse balked. Be what? she asks, with no intention to help him over, but mechanically, her thoughts being elsewhere. My wife— she starts at the words, touched by his manly way, yet pained by their appealing earnestness, and the thought she must give denying response. And how is she to give it, with least pain to him? Perhaps the bluntest way will be the best. So thinking, she says, George, it can never be. Look at that. She holds out her left hand, sparkling with jewels. At what? he asks, not comprehending. That ring— she indicates a cluster of brilliance on the fourth finger, by itself, adding the word, Engaged. Oh, God! he exclaims, almost in a groan. Is that so? It is. For a time there is silence, her answer less maddening than making him sad. With a desperate effort to resign himself, he at length replies, Dear Gwen, for I must still call you, ever hold you so, my life hereafter will be as one who walks in darkness, waiting for death. Ah, longing for it! Despair has its poetry, as love, oft exceeding the last in fervor of expression, and that of George Shenstone causes surprise to Gwen Wynne, while still further paining her. So much she knows not how to make rejoinder, and is glad when a fanfare of the band instruments gives note of another quadrille, the Lancers, about to begin. 
still engaged partners for the dance but not to be for life they return to the drawing-room and join in it he going through its figures with a sad heart and many a sigh nor is she less sorrowful only more excited nigh unto madness as she sees captain ryecroft via vis with miss powell on his face an expression of content calm almost cynical hers radiant as with triumph in this moment of gwen wynne's supreme misery acme of jealous spite were george shenstone to renew his proposal she might pluck the betrothal ring from her finger and give answer i will it is not to be so however weighty the consequence in the horoscope of her life there is yet a heavier end of chapter eight recording by amanda friday